Hi, this is Liz. I created a Facebook page called All About You, an Adopted Child Story. And if you want to pop in over there and join up with us and you can start a discussion, you can talk about what you like about the book. You can talk about similar experiences you've had in your own life. I also have an Instagram. It's Liz Butler Duran, where you can also see pictures from the book. But if you want to see all the pictures from the book, you can follow my Patreon, All About You, an Adopted Child Story. Also, if you just want to hear this whole book and not wait week to week, head on over to the Patreon and the audiobook is for sale and you can download it immediately and finish the book today. Also, if you're one of those readers who wants a book in their hand, head on over to Amazon. My book is available in paperback and on Kindle. It's easiest to find it because Amazon is a huge source. So it's easiest to search Liz Butler Duran in your Amazon search bar and it'll pop right up for you. I hope y'all are looking forward to having a wonderful holiday season with all the people you love, whether it's the family you were born into or the family you have created. And until next week, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a little review on the Apple or the Spotify or wherever you're enjoying this podcast. All About You is a memoir. I have tried to recreate events, locales, and conversations from my memories of them. In order to maintain their anonymity in some instances, I have changed the names of individuals and places. I may have changed some identifying characteristics and details, such as physical properties, occupations, and places of residence. Chapter 17. St. Peter. It turned out I got to speak to our youth minister, Pete Jorgensen. I already admired this man. He was the only man of the cloth that ever made sense to me, and that was appealing. He gave a magnificent, dramatic monologue in costume one Easter when I was about 12. He played the part of Judas, trying to justify his reasons for betraying Jesus to the Romans. If I could go back in time and see my face as that small girl in the pews, I would see eyes as wide as saucers. This was my very first live theatrical experience. It was amazing to me. It lit a fire in me and made me yearn to be him in that moment, to stand before an enthralled audience and move people with my words and my actions. Look at me. See me. His monologue ended with a broken Judas grabbing his 30 pieces of silver and throwing them down in disgust and despair. I remember watching several of them rolling down the aisle and wishing one would roll as far out as our pew, still the last one in the church, so I could take it and save it and never forget how I felt at that moment. Pete stepped down from the pulpit, and I wanted to jump up and down and clap wildly, but you didn't do that in my church. Eyes straight ahead, young lady. And everyone just sat in silence. When the service was over, I pushed my way through the throngs of people in their new suits and dresses and shiny white shoes to get that coin. When I arrived, I was so surprised to see it was just a quarter. A plain quarter. But for that second, he had turned it into silver for me. For me, that was better than the miracles I learned about in Sunday school. This was a new kind of magic, and I wanted to know how to do it. I actually enjoyed my hour with Pete that day. I had never spoken openly with a grown-up about my feelings and actually felt understood. He sympathized with me and understood that it was okay to have the feelings that I had. Liz, I hate to see you going through such a rough time, he said. 
Pete sat behind his desk in the church meeting rooms. His office was comfy, if not a little messy. He had books, lots of books. They were on shelves, on the floor, on his desk. His minister's robe hung on a rolling rack in the corner. I remembered Pete's robes the most. He never wore boring, black, billowy robes like the other ministers. His were all colorful and embroidered. He had robes for each season of the Christian calendar, or just the seasons of the year. It was always so refreshing to see him walk in. His bright blue eyes smiled at me as I sat there, initially in silence, not knowing where to start and trying not to cry. Why do you think you're here today? He asked. Well, that was a weird question. I'm here because I tried to hurt myself. Why did you do that? I don't know, I shrugged. I guess I was angry, or maybe I was sad. But basically, I just think my parents can't stand anything I do. Nothing is ever good enough for them. I'll never be as smart as my brother. They hate my friends. They think I hang with a bad crowd. They hate that I want to wear makeup. They hate this outfit. Well then, let's see if we can't figure out a way to tell them some of the things you're feeling. Maybe, together, we can all open up and settle this. I am pretty sure I rolled my eyes. I was thinking he had better have some miracle from Jesus himself to get them to open up to me. First, he said, tell me about what you feel when you think about being adopted. I wonder who my mother is and why she gave me up. I want to know what she looks like. I wonder if she's like me. I wonder if she misses me. Have you considered looking? He asked. Have you asked your parents about helping you with this? No, I laughed nervously. They would never do that. Well, what makes you think so? Well, they said they can't. It's a sealed record and cannot be unsealed. Well, that is certainly true. He leaned back in his leather chair. It creaked as he looked at me. I felt like he was sizing me up. There are adoption registries. Do you know about these? No, I knew nothing. You could request to be added to a list. And if both the adopted child and the mother are on it, they can meet. The state has one. You could put your name on it. Who knows? She might be looking for you. I was hoping she was looking for me. Do you think it could be that easy? Well, it's a start. You could go to the library and look them up. I left, the initial feeling of happiness beginning to warm my body. This wasn't the end. Sealed? Bah! This was only the beginning. A new beginning. My parents also saw Pete a few days later to discuss everything. I don't really know what they talked about because I never got to see Pete as a therapist again. We saw each other often at youth group and retreats, but the subject of my family life was closed as quickly as it had opened. He always made a point to reach out to me and see how I was, but we only scratched the surface. He never got to see the homework he gave me to do, the things I had written out for him. He always looked at me as if he were a little sad. All I know is that my parents did not hear what they wanted to hear from him. Okay, your teenage daughter downs a bottle of pills and leaves a goodbye cruel world note. You take her to one, one hour therapy session and then you're done. Case closed. Problem solved. No need to ever speak of it. Now go wash your hands. It's dinner time. Really, that happened. 
Many years later, Pete was my therapist once again as I struggled in an unhappy marriage. I asked him what happened the day he met my parents, why I didn't get to come back. He couldn't give me any real answers either because he was unsure himself or because he couldn't ethically. He did tell me that my mother kept talking about my brother and her relationship with him, and Pete would have to bring her back to the topic of me. He felt that they were not ready to open up, or perhaps it was too difficult for them. It hurt me to hear that more than I think he ever knew. It was as though I had been right. Maybe my mother did not know how to love her biological son and me at the same time and in the same way. I understand most of this now. I understand that a love for a biological child is different from any love you will ever know. I understand you cannot help the way you feel. There are many different kinds of love. Love of a spouse, love of pets, love of friends, and love of adopted children. When I think about my mother now, I see that her idea of love was corrupted, not by her hands and not her fault. She only knew what she knew. When she was growing up, she knew that her father and brother and sisters lived a different life than she did. She knew that she was the cherished child at her grandmother's house. I'm sure Mamie felt like she had the last piece of her beloved daughter in my mother. It must have been so bittersweet for Mamie. It must have felt terrible when she had to move back in with her family in high school, leaving the comfort of the only home and the only mother she had known. I wondered if she felt rejected, so much back and forth. How did her father look at her now, the object of his passion that claimed the life of his wife? I wondered how she was received by her aunt slash stepmother. I wondered about their relationship the most. Was my mother's arrival in the house an extra burden for my step-grandmother? Had they ever had a chance to form a bond? Did she see too much of her sainted sister in my mother's eyes? What was going on in that house that made my mother the woman she became? Was my mother Blackie the cat too? Chapter 18 Green-Eyed Monster My teen years were full of fantasies about what my birth mother was like. I was too young to make any significant advances in my search. I was on my own again, dealing with thoughts and feelings and curiosities that I could not settle. I wrote to every adoption registry in the state of South Carolina, and even a national one, submitting my name and information. And then I waited. I fancied a woman living somewhere in South Carolina who looked exactly like me. Maybe she had other children. Maybe they looked like me, too. Of course they did. She has very strong genes, I imagined. We would all be like her. I imagined her reading to them and tucking them into bed at night. I envisioned her as a kind of mother that would hug you every time she saw you. Kisses were sweet and tenderly left on your cheeks. Praise was given with a sweet smile and encouragement, enthusiastically offered when you weren't doing your best. She was beautiful and turned heads everywhere she went. Her husband and children loved her dearly. Imagining all these things made me jealous. I tried not to be. It wasn't my adoptive parents' fault that she didn't keep me. I would feel guilty that I was being an ungrateful child. Here I was, living a fine life, in a fine home, with parents who provided everything for me, but my heart longed to meet another. 
Then I would feel like a victim, like I'm just playing a piece in the game of all their lives. My birth mother makes a move, my adoptive parents take their turn, and there is me, stuck on the red square, waiting to make a move of my own. I packed all these feelings up tightly and tried to tuck them away so they wouldn't stop me from dreaming of beautiful things. It was becoming very hard to keep those weeds out of my fantasy garden. There was still that long-ago planted whisper in my ear, and it fed my jealousy and my what-ifs. Bitterness crept in, and I cried a lot thinking about it. I started to doubt myself and the love my mother might still have for me. Maybe this other life had filled up her heart, and there was no room for me. I took any opportunity to drive very slowly by the Florence Crittenden home where I was born. Sometimes I parked and simply watched the house. I fantasized about volunteering at the Florence Crittenden home. I would become their prized volunteer, and they would trust me with all aspects of running the home. Liz, the house mother would say, you are such a benefit to this house. I don't know how I ever did it without you. Thank you, Marge. Her name was Marge in my dream. I don't know why. It just sounded very house motherish. You know I love my work here. Why don't you let me help you with filing and archiving? I love to organize things, and I could get in there and make it so easy for you and the rest of the staff. Please, would you? Why didn't I think of that? Well, that's what I'm here for, Marge. Eventually, I would stay late one night and break into the secret files and extract all the information I needed to discover my true identity. Yes, of course that would work. Chapter 19. The Musical Montage Moment Three days after I graduated from high school, I moved out of my parents' home never to return. Well, unless I needed money, or some food, or maybe laundry. When I was 19, I announced to my parents that I was dropping out of college and marrying my boyfriend of less than a year, Jim. He was an officer in the Army, and we were moving to his next station in Germany for the next four years. Auf Wiedersehen, suckers. The joke was on me. I did not have the exotic life I expected full of parties and travel. I was a wife, with no job, and the manager of a household budget. At 19, I was the youngest of all the officers' wives, and I felt the sting of their judgment. I left my parents' home assuming I was mature enough to handle the world on my own. This was my time to blossom and grow under the ever-loving and understanding glow of my young, handsome husband's affection for me. I could not have been more wrong. I made foolish choices and struggled to find my voice in a world of grown-ups who didn't quite let me in. Nothing was different for me then. If anything, things were worse. I was trapped in a foreign country, and the only escape would have been to return to my parents' home full of criticism, embarrassment, and judgments. So I stayed where I was until we returned to America when I was 23 and our marriage quickly fell apart. I didn't divorce Jim because I no longer loved him. I loved him deeply, but I could not follow him on his life path anymore. I was still a young girl with no idea who I was or what I wanted to be while he was well on his way to a career. I didn't even know how to process that. I remember the last day of our marriage. I had gone back to the town we lived in to sign our papers and to get my cat. At first, we had decided to let Big Kitty live with him, but the more we were apart, 
the more I needed that cat back in my life. He was a piece of my old life that I could still love and not have to leave. I remember backing out of our driveway, and before I hit the street, I looked back at the little house we had shared. He was standing there, watching me leave, his hands in his pockets. Was the look on his face sadness or disappointment? I wasn't sure. Still, I never really thought that would be the end of us. In my youthful fantasies, I always imagined we would go through our lives and have other loves and maybe even children, but that one day we would be together again. We would be old, single people who miraculously found each other again. We would marvel at each other's children and how handsome and beautiful they were. I would love his children because I would see glimpses of my young husband in their eyes. He would love my children as his own as he fell in love with me and my spirit all over again. Another lifetime ago, we would say and laugh, holding older, wrinkled hands. We would spend our golden years back in Europe. He would continue to tease me about my broken German, and I would continue to roll my eyes at him and say silly American things like, Oh, they know exactly what I mean. Now, though, back in the good old USA, I felt like some odd immigrant who had discovered the bounty of the new world. Opportunities and options. I felt free again. I was going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and conquer whatever was left of my 20s. I moved into a little apartment back in Charleston and got the first job I could find to pay the bills. I was a cocktail waitress in a country western bar, wearing short shorts and slinging draft beers at wannabe urban cowboys. If this book were a movie, you would now be in store for a musical montage, using some song by the likes of Carly Simon or Sheena Easton, of Liz moving through jobs, finding husband number two, and going back to college. It would end with a 26-year-old Liz graduating from college, success, buying a house with her own hard-earned money, you go, girl, and standing in the small but neatly landscaped yard, arm around her second husband, admiring her successes and wondering what the future will hold. She dreams of big things in her future, great jobs and even bigger houses, and smiles at her husband, who was thinking that this is more than he ever needed, and he really hopes life never changes. Liz knows she will change his mind. All good women can do that for their husbands, right? Maybe starting a family would help. Poor misguided Liz. She's doomed, I tell you, doomed. The entire movie audience can see this. Why can't Liz? Chapter 20 This is bullshit. When I was 24, I was still working in the food and beverage industry in Charleston. I had left my short shorts and my beer-stained cropped t-shirt at the Country Western Bar and was now shaking martinis and muddling cherries for Manhattans at a Charleston premier four-star hotel in the heart of the historic district. But I felt as if I were stuck in a holding pattern. I enjoyed the cold hard cash in my pockets every night but I was watching my friends all transition into the expected young adult lifestyles that included working 9 to 5 on the weekdays and whooping it up on the weekends. I felt left out of what seemed to be a bigger picture of success and settling down. 
I decided to go back to college and finish the education I had thrown away as a young, selfish 19-year-old girl who was still trying to find out who she was and where her life would lead her. I chose to study psychology because I knew it took crazy to know crazy, and I dreamed of helping the young teens of the world escape the depths of their confusion. I was trying to learn to forgive my parents for the mistakes they had made, trying to understand that they did their best with the limited experience that all parents have. I was beginning to accept the fact that I might never know anything about the people who created me, but I was still spinning my fantasy web. I was still hoping that one day, some miracle would bring us together. I wasn't sure if I would ever be fully content until all the curtains were opened, shining the light of truth into the dark room of my past. What if I got to do a thesis for school on the effects of nature versus nurture? I could interview the people that work for the Child Services Bureau of South Carolina. I could get to know them. We could be good friends over my months and months of research. One night, over cocktails, celebrating the success of my completed paper, I would mention my own adoption and see the sympathy in the eyes of my new friends. They cannot give me any information, they say with great regret in their eyes, but maybe tomorrow, one of them says, you can walk by my office while I'm at lunch. There might be a file on my desk that you might accidentally open. One day, a family law attorney entered my bar and changed everything. I quickly jumped, as I always did, tossed back my long curly hair, batted my pretty blue eyes at him, and offered to buy him a drink if he'd answer a question for me. So, I leaned into him on the edge of the stainless steel bar, what do you know about adoptions and opening sealed records? I rested my chin on my hand, lips barely parted, awaiting the answer that my oh-so-smooth seduction invoked. I mean, a girl can try, right? He suggested I hire a private investigator to look over my non-identifying information and see if there were any leads. These documents were supplied by the government on request, and he insinuated that they often revealed clues that could help anyone with the right skills of deduction to put the details together and find success. My what? Non-identifying information? How had I never heard of this? Apparently, it was my right to request this information from the state of South Carolina. Basically, they would send my entire case file with all the pertinent information blocked out, just like top-secret reports from the government. This was the most exciting thing I had ever heard. I immediately went about taking care of this. I requested a form that I had to fill out and notarize, then, with a measly $25 fee, I could get my report. I actually carried around this form for months. I used the excuse that I couldn't find a notary. Bull****. I worked in a bar filled with attorneys. The truth was, I was terrified. What if I had been wrong all this time? What if my birth mother wasn't the woman I had fantasized about? How many times had I heard the stories that did not end well? She might not be waiting with open arms. It was easy to spend my time deep in the fantasy world of the what-ifs. The what-if world had been my playground for a long time, and it was hit or miss whether it was a good place to be. If I was energized and excited, my birth mother was a charming socialite who always regretted her decision to give away her firstborn daughter and longed for a reunion. 
If I was in one of my dark times, she was a victim of violence who suffered through a pregnancy and never wanted to lay eyes on the product of her torturer. I pushed those hateful thoughts aside. I couldn't let the doubts creep in because I knew deep down she was a lovely woman. I knew she was just like me. I looked in mirrors and I knew I was looking into my mother's eyes. I knew it. Didn't I? It didn't help that my soon-to-be ex, second husband, wasn't exactly supportive. I knew he was concerned I would be disappointed, and I let that feed my doubts, the weeds once again choking the garden of hope inside of me. It was my best girlfriends that pushed me to see it through. We had all spent so many hours discussing it. They knew how much I longed for answers. We were all getting older and thinking about someday having families of our own, so the thoughts of family hit closer to our hearts than they ever had before. Of course, they wanted me to follow through. It was curiosity, wasn't it? Nothing would change in their lives. They were not running the risk of rejection. Nonetheless, the deed was finally fait accompli. I approached the mailbox, filled with nervous excitement, tinged with just enough fear to make my hand shake, and I mailed one of the most important letters in my life. And then I waited. After about a month, I wasn't running to the mailbox every day. The disappointment was too much to bear daily, so I all but gave up. The watched pot never boiled. On a hot summer Saturday, I went for a power walk with my dog Rudy. We rounded the corner to my block when the mailbox caught my eye. The flap was left open because a large manila envelope had exceeded its capacity and was jutting out. Just like that, it was there. I didn't even make it into the house before I was ripping open the envelope and spilling its contents onto my sweaty lap. I was prepared, to some extent, to see the blackouts that were very prominent on page one. All names, cities, occupations, or any distinguishing features would be covered with whiteout tape before being photocopied. I knew this. Page one, worker, blank. Abstract for Janet. Mother, 20 years old, high school and two years of college, comma, sales clerk, dash, gifts and accessories, comma, 5'6", 125 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes. Intelligent, good grades, plays piano and sings, plays basketball and tennis, dances, art courses, ceramics, likes sewing, swims, seems mature, very attractive-looking, well-liked in the home, high standards. I must have read that over and over. I wanted to memorize it. I wanted to think about every word that worker blank had used to describe my mother. In many ways, she had just described me. I was everything that they said about her. Same height, weight, complexion, eye color, the piano... The singing? I even gave myself the very attractive-looking nod because that made me more like her. High standards. I knew what they meant. She was accustomed to a certain lifestyle. It's just as I thought. The society girl had gotten herself into trouble. I knew it. And then, the description of my father. 
A F colon. What's the A for? I found out it was for alleged. 26 years old, high school and four years of college, salesman, six feet, 175 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes, seems very intelligent, good personality, nice looking, good mixer, successful. 26? That was young for a boss if my father's story was true. I began to buy into the seduction of my poor younger mother by this nice-looking good mixer. I could see how he had cast his spell over her. Maybe, every day, she would come to work and he would be there with his dazzling smile and smooth talk. That good mixer. They would flirt over the jewelry counter. He would just happen to be around when she took her break, asking her questions about her day or what she might be doing later that evening. Would she come to work every day, looking forward to seeing him? Would she often catch him looking at her across the room? Maybe they would stand a little too close to each other in the back room. Perhaps he would steal their first kiss right there, away from the prying eyes of the other girls on the showroom floor. She would return blushing and a little frazzled. The other girls would know this was going on. They might even be jealous. How long before he asked her out? How long? Did they keep it a secret? All this, and I was only on page one. A magnificent story was waiting to be discovered on page two. All the things I ever wanted to know were here in my hands for the first time. I was 27 years old, and the mysteries were finally about to be revealed to me. I just knew I would find the answers on these pages. I was still sitting on the steps to my house. The sun was warm on my face, and my dog was lying, panting at my feet, looking up at me with his happy doggy face. I took a moment to enjoy the last moments of living in darkness, and took a deep breath before continuing. Here I come, page two. Let me have it. My first thought was that the good people at the Children's Bureau of South Carolina really needed to invest in a new copy machine. I had in my hands a badly copied, black-streaked page with a dark stripe down the middle, making it very difficult to read. That wouldn't have been so bad. I could have handled that. What hit me like a fast kick to the stomach was the amount of words that had been redacted. It was going to be hard enough, but wow. Blank, baby case. This case was referred to the Children's Bureau of South Carolina by Mrs. Blank, of the blank, in blank, and accepted by blank. Blank. I talked with blank at the blank on this date. Blank had entered the home blank in 1967, and her hospital name is blank. Blank's mother brought her to the home, and when I asked where her father blank was, she said he could not leave work. Blank's parents are Mr. and Mrs. Blank of blank. Mr. Blank is a blank at blank. They manufacture blank equipment. Mrs. Blank does not work outside the home. Wow. They continued to describe some siblings and even a close relative who was also expecting a child at the same time as my mother. It was hard to wrap my brain around it. It made me stop and start reading over and over, wanting it to flow and fill me up. Instead, it was frustrating and made me feel lost. My emotions were all over the place. Here she was in a terrifying situation. Her relative was pregnant at the same time. Interesting. 
that had to make it harder for her, seeing her family enjoying the arrival of a new member while she hides her own pregnancy as a dark secret. Who had she confided in? Who was helping her? I could only hope she was not dealing with all these feelings alone. What was I going to find out? Nonetheless, I had to keep going. The words had definitely been well blocked out with white-out tape, but it had been a big job for the secretary. What were the odds? She hit every mark. If she could just have accidentally left one clue, one piece of tape unstuck, or better yet, not stuck well enough, and it shifted and moved while it was run through the worst copy machine in the entire state of South Carolina. I bet the prisons had nicer machines than this one. This left just enough hope for me to slow down and devour every word very carefully. My mother had entered the home in December, but it seemed as though the social worker did not interview her until February 1st. That had to have been unsettling for her. All alone in a strange city, in a strange place without her family. The report said she had three roommates. Were these girls like her? Were they nice to her? Did they confide in one another or try not to look too closely at each other for fear they will know somebody who knows them and then their secrets will be exposed? There was some mix-up that caused her case to be overlooked, and now they were in a hurry. The baby was due on or around February 17th, and they needed to do lots of work to make plans for the baby. The first paragraph was all about her, when and where she was born, blacked out, of course, with the exception of the year. It did give me the year she graduated from high school, 1966. So I was grateful for that nugget of information. She didn't explain why she only went to college for a short time, but she did talk about her job, which she loved. I had noticed here they had blacked out the kind of store it was, but I know from the abstract that it was jewelry, So I sensed this was my first crack in the case. A blank store. And she planned to make this her profession. Aha! Plan number one. Call a gift shop or jewelry shop in her hometown, anyone will do, and ask them which one was opened in 1967 and hope it still is. Easy. Got it. This is the South. It could be closed 10 years, but folks would still talk about it and even use it as a reference. You cannot get directions to any place in town from a Southerner without them using a reference to a building or shop that is long gone. Example. Excuse me, an out-of-towner will ask a local Southern man. I am trying to get to the bank, but I am lost. Well, now, he approaches their car window, wiping his brow with a red bandana. Well, that's just a piece on down the road. You head on up yonder to the red light by the old Walmart that's now a buy-low, but it used to be a blockbuster, and turn left, and it's just a hop, skip, and a jump down by the left by the gas station. But actually, that used to be a barber shop when I was a boy, and good Lord, old man Causey kept that place a-hopping. He served lemonade in the summer, and I just remember going down there to get some with my friend Little Kenny. We called him Little Kenny because his daddy was Big Kenny. You get it. They continued to talk about how well she was doing in the home and how everyone liked her. She showed some ceramic pieces she was making in the arts class. She also learned to make fried chicken. She said she finally felt very relaxed there, knowing she could just wait for the baby and not worry about anyone finding out. 
They inquired about my father, and she told them that she would rather not say who he was, other than that she knew him well enough to supply any information they might need. The report said she seemed puzzled that they would expect her to talk about him. She insisted that he did not know, and she wanted to keep it that way. He believed that her family sent her for a vacation with her best friend. She anticipated returning and resuming the relationship, and it was too late to tell him now. My mother, blank, had many questions for the social worker. She was concerned about what would happen to the baby and wanted to know what kind of home it would be placed in. The worker assured her that they worked within the girl's wants to help place the baby. This made my mother very happy. In the caseworker's evaluation, she mentioned how attractive my mother was. She said that she spoke highly of her close-knit family, she was from an above-average socioeconomic family, and her clothes were quite distinctive. The social worker felt that over time, she would loosen up a bit more and would feel more comfortable naming the father of the child. She spoke freely about him, although she was still not naming him. In the next interview, she named the father as blank blank, but had decided it would not do to tell him about the pregnancy. She regretted not telling her boyfriend and parents about the baby right away. She felt certain he would have married her, and her parents would have wanted her to keep the baby. She was afraid she had now waited too long and didn't want to bring shame to her and his families. Her father, blank, held a very important position at the blank, and this would disgrace him. Now, though, she had left town under false pretenses, and returning with a baby would have given everyone a lot to say. She was happy to say he was still stopping by her parents' home to ask about her and see if she was having a big time on her vacation. She thought that if there was any chance of continuing the relationship, he must never know. The house mother was interviewed at this juncture in the case and described my mother as refined, elegant, and polished. The next interview had her giving background information on her parents, where they were from, the sizes of their families, and the age her grandparents were. It was a hard paragraph to read, because every other word seemed to be a whiteout. As I carefully read along, an actual name popped up at me. Jill. My mother's hospital name was Jill. They chose an alias upon arrival, and this was hers. Jill, I think this will come in very handy when I get my dream volunteer job at the unwed mother's home and break into the secret files. The next entry was this. February 29, 1968. Blank baby born at the blank in Charleston on this date. The baby was a girl weighing 7 pounds, 12 ounces. She was pronounced in good physical condition. Blank returned to the home the next day. The caseworker arrived to have her sign the agreement to have the baby removed from the hospital and sent to the temporary home. She found my mother tired and weepy. Blank signed the form. The next entry was dated March 12th. The caseworker returned to find my mother in much better spirits and looking very attractive. This was the caseworker's favorite word. She was so grateful for the help and care she received she said her parents were preparing everyone for her return home. She had been sunning herself outside because she was supposed to be away on vacation and should return to looking tanned and healthy. 
she made a point of telling her caseworker that when she returned, she would inform her boyfriend that she would not be having sex again unless she was married, and if he were to break up with her over that, she was okay with his choice. The next entry. Surrender. Blank and I discussed the surrender of her baby, and she understood that she was giving up all rights and claims to the baby, and that she would be placed in a suitable home as quickly as possible. Blank filled in and signed the surrender form, which was witnessed by Mrs. Blank. She cried a great deal during this time, and I felt that all of her pinned-up feelings were coming through, and at last she had faced up to really what she had done. Evaluation I feel that Blank is a very intelligent, mature type girl who is quite polished and accomplished in so many ways. She seems to be from people who are in very high socioeconomic standards. The information on the alleged father was verified, and I believe this baby has very good potential and would fit nicely into any home the Bureau might select for her. May 24, 1968. The rest of the report was the case about my placement, and the blanks had stopped. This was a relief, and it was very interesting to see another person's take on the first months of my life with the butlers. It began with that hot summer day in August. A six-month-old Janet was soon to become Elizabeth Legree. I already knew that the first people to meet me were my brother and aunt, and now I knew that the first parent to hold me was my father. They described him as being charmed by the lovely baby and that I took to him readily. The caseworker left me alone in the room with them so they could look me over and discuss things. But she said they were out in half a minute, so pleased with the child and ready to move on with the process. Jonathan came to the room at this time and he was described as one of the most enthusiastic little boys I have ever seen about a new member of the family. The worker feels this placement went well. Worker, blank, called and visited the butlers regularly over the next year. She had friends in Mount Pleasant, and they all knew the story of the beautiful baby the dentist, Dr. Butler, and his wife had adopted. I was all the talk in my tiny Mount Pleasant. My mother was worried about all the company she was getting, and she commented that she hoped it would be back to normal soon. I'm sure my mother wasn't thrilled with all the attention, but she managed it well, it seems. Many years later, my father gave me the written correspondence that they had to provide to the state over the first year of adoption regarding my well-being and how I was getting along. Of course, the good doctor had to have a copy for his own records, and they were carefully written on copy paper. Of the twelve that were written, only one came from my mother. He would handle it all. My proud father, documenting in his doctor, scientific way, all the progress I was making, calling me the queen of hearts. And, in every letter, you knew exactly how many teeth I had. The last line of the report read, It appears this placement is going well. <laughs>